All right, we're going to go ahead and read one more psalm before we get started, and this will be the uh, psalm number 30. So let me get here. Psalm 30, this is a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was troubled. I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made my supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. All right, what I'm going to do, and I've, I've never done this with a Genesis sermon before. I've always just stopped with the text that we're going to go through. But today I'm going to read you the entire chapter uh, because I want you to have the whole chapter in context. And next week's sermon will comprise the last seven verses of this chapter. But what I want you to do, if you're at all familiar with the New Testament, is try to think why God put this in the Bible. What is it pointing to? Because it's pointing to something that's coming, or coming in Christ, not at this time, in other words. These pictures are showing us something else that will come later in redemptive history, in other words. So try to think through. See if you can grasp it, and if not, we will talk about it, and it's pretty wonderful what God has tucked away in his word. This is chapter 38, starting at verse number 1. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw that there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chazib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he omitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar's daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt with her father's, uh, in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please, let me come in to you, for he did not, not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me, that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send a young goat of the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? 
So she said, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, There was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. Now that's where we're going to stop today with the sermon, but I'm going to finish up the chapter, seven more verses. And it came to pass about three months after that, that after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she put, was giving birth that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, How did you break through this breach be upon you? Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Sarah. <clears throat> Chapter 38 of Genesis is something like chapter 34. Now, it was I, I had forgotten that this happened, but a year or so ago, I was already into the Genesis sermons, and my brother called me and said, you know, chapter 34, do you have any idea what that's about? And I was like, you know, I'm not there yet, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. And I said, I'm really not sure. I've read this probably 50 times, and I know it's a neat story, but I don't know why it's there. Anyway, we saw in chapter 34 the incident of Dinah, she was being violated, and then Jacob's sons killed the whole town because of this. And the story was there for a reason, which we did find out. It made a lot of sense once we realized the significance of what God was trying to tell us. However, that reason was veiled in pictures of things that really happened, but which pointed to something else. And this chapter is the same. It is interesting, just like chapter 34. It has intrigue, just like chapter 34. It has sadness and joy all mixed into it, just like chapter 34. But it's more than just a fun story. One of the things that it includes is the continuance of the line of Judah, which is the tribe which Jesus comes from. This is certain. But we could have learned that in all of about a sentence or two. In fact, many people are in Jesus' ancestry that there's nothing about them at all. All of the extra detail could otherwise be considered fat to be removed unless it's telling us something deeper, something rich and helpful to our understanding of the reason why things happen as they do. The ultimate meaning of what chap this chapter here is pointing to is very similar to what happened in chapter 34. So if you remember how chapter 34 turned out, or if you go back home and watch those sermons, then you may also be able to see the fulfillment of the pictures in this story too. If not, then pay attention to the historical and cultural details that we're going to go through today, and then next week I'm going to finish up the chapter with a wonderful, I mean this truly, a wonderful explanation of what we're being told. In all honesty, just like I said, with this story that my brother asked about Dinah, I had only an inkling of why it was given. 
It turned out that thinking these pictures through made for one of the most difficult sermons that I have yet done in the book of Genesis. I frustrated over it. I mulled over it. I pondered over it. I stressed over it. And I fretted over it. Then I went to bed thinking about it. I tell you what, my wife isn't here, but she would testify. During dinner, I sat there like this through the whole dinner. I, I didn't even taste my food. I just, my brain was, why, Lord? Why have you given us this story? It has to be pointing to something. And at 3.04 in the morning, I woke up and looked at the clock. I suddenly realized what this story was talking about. And by 3.19, just 15 minutes later, I had almost the entire picture in my head. Yes, the night watches were filled with contemplating the word of God. And because of this, I have a text verse for you today from the 119th Psalm, which says this, My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. God's word is a beautiful treasure. But as is the case with most treasure, it isn't revealed without being searched out. One cannot place the Bible under their pillow and expect that information to ooze into their brain. Rather, it needs to be read, it needs to be contemplated, and it needs to be meditated on. Even in the darkest hours of the night, the psalmist meditated on God's word, and so should we. So make every effort to spend your days wisely, reading, pondering, and loving God's precious gift, the Holy Bible. It is living, it is active, and it is ready to instruct us as we pay heed to it. And so may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I got three thoughts for you on this particular passage. The first is Judah's unrighteousness. Chapter 38 of Genesis is interesting for what it contains, no doubt about it. But it seems like a side narrative unless you know why it's included. Here we've got this story of Joseph that's been going on, and it's going to go back to Joseph. And we have all of these things about the life of Joseph. But this is actually a main narrative, just like the life of Joseph is. Joseph's life and his ordeal is recorded to show how Israelites ended up down in the land of Egypt and how they were cared for when they were down there and how God brought them out by a mighty delivery and the Exodus and the Passover and all of the things which lead up until the times of Jesus. But at the same time, everything about Joseph is also providing pictures of the coming Messiah. The story of Judah and his family here in chapter 38 is given us to show us about the main line which leads to the Messiah. As I said, Judas is going, Jesus is going to come through Judah. And because of this, the story here bears directly on his ancestry. In fact, this girl that is going to be introduced here in a little while tomorrow is a very important picture in the coming pages of the Bible. And she's listed in Matthew's genealogy in chapter one. So it's a very important thing which is being taught to us, even if it's just a story that we don't understand. Our first verse today, it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and a certain Adulamite whose name was, uh, and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hera. The first verse here starts with, it came to pass at that time. In other words, it's a general statement which can fit into any of the events of the previous chapter. And if you know chapter 36, there are, uh, sorry, chapter 37, there are quite a few pictures that it could have fit into. At some point during those stories, the events of this story came about and they continue to unfold. Judah, like his brothers, is a shepherd. And so what he'd do is he'd take his flocks out and he'd go heading for green pasture somewhere. But for whatever reason, he decided to go out on his own and leave his brothers behind and to visit this guy named Hira. Hira means nobility. He's noted as an Adulamite. 
Adullam is a town which is south and it's west of Jer Jerusalem in the lowlands. In the, the Hebrew Bible, it's called the Shephelah. Adullam means righteousness or justice of the people. And if you want to know why I'm giving you these names, I'll explain it in a minute. But uh, verse 2. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. Now, while visiting Hira in Adullam, Judah married a daughter of Shua, who is termed a Canaanite. Shua means wealth. Now, this verse right here is one that should tell us the importance of names in the Bible. Why would God record these names and why do we know it's important from this verse? Because the name of Judah is given. The name of his friend Hira is given, and the people that he belongs to, Adullam, is given. The people of his wife's uh, father is given, Canaanites, and the name of his wife's father is given, it's Shua. But the wife is not named. The one person that you'd expect to be named in this story is not named at all. This tells us that we are to pay attention when names are given in the Bible. There is a story that is within a story that we should be looking for. Now, the dating is very hard to pin down on when this occurred. As I said, it could have occurred during a stream of events from chapter 37. But Genesis 46 will tell us this about the people from Judah's family which go down to Egypt. All right, it says, The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez, which is uh, Judah's son, it's now going to list Judah's grandson, uh, were Hezron and Hamul. If the sons of Perez went to Egypt, they, if they actually physically moved to Egypt, then Judah got married when he was about 14 years old. And this happened all the way back at the time when they were up in Shechem when Dinah was violated. And we know that from the contents of the story. But there is another possibility, and that's that the two sons of Perez were actually born in Egypt. Uh, they've been listed as going down to Egypt, but they could have been born in the land of Egypt. And this type of speech is actually seen several times in the Bible. A person who is still in the loins of their parent will be spoken of in a future tense as if they actually did something before they were born. So either is possible, but either way, Judah is still a young man. Verse 3, so she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. Judah's firstborn is named Ur. Ur means watching or watcher. Verse 4, she conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. With no other commentary, now you've got to figure there's at least a year between these two children being born. There's no other commentary about the times in life of Judah, and the story jumps straight into the naming of the next-born son, who is Onan. His name means strong. But instead of Judah naming the second son, it says that she named him. So you have to ask, why is that in there? Verse 5, and she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chazib when she bore him, and yet again. A third son is recorded by name. His name is Shelah. That means prosperity. Again, the wife names the son, and then it notes that he, Judah, is at Chazib when she bore him. You have to say, why is this type of detail in here? God is trying to get us to look into these things and not just breeze over them. Chazib means false or falsehood. Verse 6, then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Judah got married at a young age, and now he finds a wife for his firstborn, also at a young age. The wife he chooses for her is named Tamar. Her name means palm tree. In the Bible, the palm tree has several connotations. It's a symbol of prosperity. It is the element of an oasis, and it also pictures a faithful and righteous person. 
the 92nd Psalm gives this symbolism of it. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still, still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Because of this symbolism, depictions of the palm trees lavishly ordained the walls of both Solomon's temple and Ezekiel's prophetic temple, which is described in the book of Ezekiel. Verse 7, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. This is one of those verses where, and I know this, a lot of people start to take offense against God and against the Bible. Or there are those who have no problem with this verse, but then they struggle with the death of someone they think is a good person. But God is the creator, and this is his world. If he wants to remove someone for whatever reason, because they're wicked or maybe to save them from something that might be a bigger catastrophe in their own future, this is his right. In the case of Ur, he was wicked in the sight of Jehovah, and so Jehovah killed him. I have personally no problem at all with this. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And as Job said, after he lost everything in his life except a nagging wife, blessed be the name of the Lord. In Ur's death, God's plans are being worked out. And in each of our lives as well, we can only count on the breath that's in our nostrils. Our life will in fact end. And the only questions that we can really ask ourselves about that is how and when. But it's going to end. Every one of us is going to meet that destiny. Now, there's an interesting play in the name Ur, on the name Ur, and in his wickedness. The same letters are used to spell both his name Ur and the word wickedness. Ur is spelled Ayin Resh, and then wicked is spelled Resh Ayin. It's the word Ra. It's almost as if the Bible is trying to describe this person as completely wicked, it being his very nature. Ur's wickedness is great like the people before the flood of Noah. It's great like the people of Sodom, both of which were destroyed by the Lord. And we're seeing it again in Ur. Verse 8, And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. Now because Ur is dead and he's left no children, Judah tells his second son Onan to take Tamar as his wife and raise up an heir for Ur. Onan, take your brother's wife, take Tamar and go into her. For I want you to raise up another life. Yes, I want you to raise up an heir for Ur. The word used for this marriage is a special word. It's, it's a leveret marriage. And it's used just for this purpose. It's where a person acts as a husband for the widow of a brother who died without children. This is something that is actually going to be mandated later under the law of Moses. But it was a custom which obviously was known at the time that this story occurred long before the, the law of Moses. And it's also known to have been practiced in many cultures of the Mideast and Africa outside of the covenant people of Israel. So it's something that is cultural in nature. It's a way of honoring the dead so that their name doesn't die out. It will also ensure, and this is important, that the inheritance of the firstborn remains alive. Verse 9, but Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. Well, one thing we could do is never say that the Bible hides the faults of man, no matter how unusual they are. Because of the custom of the land and Judah's direction to him, the first child of Onan would not be recorded as his. It would be listed under Ur. 
and the inheritance for Ur would go to this son rather than to his own. And this didn't sit well with Onan, and so instead of refusing to have Tamar at all, which he could have done, he committed a worse act. He took her as a wife, but he would not provide a child for her in the process. The Hebrew word literally says he destroyed to the ground. It's very graphic terminology. So he treated her shamefully, he disgraced the name of his brother, and he violated the custom which was handed down to him by his father. Verse 10, and the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, the Lord killed him also. Now, because of this sin against the Lord, against the woman, against the brother, and against his father, the Lord killed Onan also. Now, the questions that one might ask are, why does the Lord kill Ur when there's lots of wicked people on the earth, and yet he doesn't kill all of the wicked people on the earth? And why did the Lord kill Onan when there were certainly others who were doing the same type of thing in this culture as he did, but the Lord doesn't kill them? The answer is found in the title of the one who killed them. Our Bibles say the Lord, but if you look at the original Hebrew, the title is Jehovah. It's Jehovah specifically and not God in general. When the title Jehovah is used, it's speaking of the one who monitors the covenant and the covenant people. The title Lord or Jehovah is only mentioned three times in this entire chapter and only in the two verses about Ur and Onan. What they have done is a violation of the covenant that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and which is now passed down to the sons of Israel. As Judah is the one that is in the line leading to the Messiah, which we've already determined from previous uh, passages, these two sons have willfully disgraced the covenant given to them. What Onan has done here has been used, and I mean this sincerely, it's been used a jillion times as a verse prescribing that we must not do what he did. And then from that, the concept is built on that people must intend to procreate every time they have relations with their wife. There are denominations that teach this. And then from that come mandates against birth control. One concept is built upon another, inserting mandates which are beyond what scripture is stating or what scripture is even implying. The use of the term Lord or Jehovah shows that this is not at all what's intended. This is a covenant violation. It is not a human transgression which is being judged, although it is also a human transgression. Otherwise, another term, God, would have been used instead of the term the Lord. The Bible is actually silent on the issue of birth control, be it either the timing cycle or by any other means. And this verse here cannot be, and yet it is quite often used as a text against birth control. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, the first three sons of Jacob, have all been excluded from the blessing of being the one that leads to the Messiah. And so Jehovah's eyes and his covenant-keeping responsibilities are directed toward Judah and his descendants. Jehovah saw these two as unfit, and so he took their life. It is his covenant to monitor, and he is the one who decides how it will be enforced. Now, with these two wicked sons out of the way, a new avenue to the Messiah is going to be sought out by the Lord. And I would suggest right now that Tamar was probably aware of the covenant and the promise through Judah. I'm just speculating. The Bible doesn't say this. But there is no reason to assume that Judah would have kept it from his own wife, nor is there a reason to assume that Ur didn't know this, that he was made aware of it, and that he probably would have told Tamar as well. All right? And that's important to understand in that particular instance. And when I'm talking about things being taken in the context of the Bible, such as birth control, this is exactly 
why we get into the Bible the way we do, is to take everything in the context that God intends and why he states the things. Had the word Lord not been used in those verses, we may have come up with a different conclusion. But everything has to be taken in context. And I want to give you an example that happened this week. I had a friend that moved up north. He's going through some type of training. And he emailed me and he says, we got in a big uh, debate about polygamy. And I want to know your opinion on it. And the first thing that I uh, went back, and it doesn't matter what my opinion is. It doesn't matter if I like polygamy or if I'm against polygamy. It's irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what the Bible teaches. Okay, And I gave him the verses in support of what the Bible teaches on this. And he came back and he says, well, that's not the position I take. I think, well, there's error. When you say, I think, you are introducing your hopes and your desires and your thoughts into the Word of God. The Word of God is specific and it gives certain things that we are to know. All right. So I went back and I said, you know, I, I'm not trying to be rude. It's just what we think doesn't matter. And then he gave some verses, and I went back with the proper context of the verses, and I said that was not what was intended in that verse. And then he came back with a final verse, uh, which was citing something from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And then I went and I showed him how that verse is relayed into the concept of what he was talking about. And he realized it doesn't matter what I think what matters is what God teaches. And as I said, I'm not a, a, a proponent of polygamy, and I'm not one to say you can't be a polygamist. All I care about is what the Bible teaches on that issue. That's all I care about, and that's what I wanted him to know. So this is the kind of thing that we need to know as far as apl applying the Bible to our life. Okay, we'll go on to verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar's daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. Tamar has seen two husbands die and she hasn't borne any children. And Judah knows that Shelah right now is too young to perform his duties by giving her to him so that he can have a child in the place of his two brothers. And so he says to her to go and remain a widow in her father's house until Shelah is old enough to fulfill that role. In saying this, it's indicating that she must remain a widow and not marry outside the family. He's saying this isn't the father-in-law. This is what I expect of you. As he has a responsibility to the name of his dead son, she has a responsibility to the name of her dead husband. Verse 11 continues, for he said, lest he also die like his brothers. We can infer that he said this to himself and not to Tamar. What Judah was actually worried about was not Tamar at all. He's worried about the life of his third son. In essence, this lady has killed two of my sons already, and I don't want to lose the third. So that's what's going on in his mind. Verse 11 continues, and Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now what's obviously in view here is that Tamar is the one who has suffered the loss of two husbands. Judah may feel that she is to blame, but Tamar may think exactly the opposite. I've lost two husbands from this family already. One was wicked, and she knew it even if Judah didn't. The other was cruel, and she knew it even if Judah didn't. When is this suffering going to end? And yet, in faithfulness to this family and to the custom that she's been given, she went back to dwell in her father's house. She acts in an upright manner, just as her name, Palm Tree, implies. We come to our second thought of the day. A pledge is given. Verse 12, now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. Here we have an interesting phrase in Hebrew. It's veyirbu hayamim, or and the days were multiplied. It means an indeterminate amount of time. We can't know, and that's why I say uh, this thing about Judah earlier. We don't know exactly when it happened during this previous narrative. But it usually means a very long period in the context of the Bible, even several years. Sometime after Judah made his promise to Tamar, 
his wife dies. Birth, life, and death, they're all at the Lord's discretion. And so it shows that what is coming in the verses ahead is being set up by the Lord's hand. And I got to tell you something, this is something that I would like you to consider on this same thought right here. I have a friend that's been in jail for a year now. He's going to be out of jail this coming week. And everybody in jail, we talked about this, uh, some friends of mine earlier, but uh, everybody in jail, of course, is innocent. Nobody will ever admit their guilt. But I can tell you this, sitting here in this chair, that I know that this man was innocent of what he was convicted of. There's no doubt in my mind. And uh, he uh, did not understand this happening in his life. He's a very good Christian man. He's suffered some things in the past four years of his life that are comparable to the life of Job. If you know the story of Job, it's amazing what this guy has gone through. And I told him when he left, I said, there's always a reason why things happen in our life. We don't see it, and so we get the stress of going through it. But the Lord has a reason for these things. And I told him, I know that this will be the case, and he will show it to you someday. It may not be when you're alive. It may be when you're in glory, but you will see it. But last week, I email him every single day. I've tried to keep in contact with him. I missed a couple days, which I'll always regret. But uh, last week, he emailed me back, and he said, uh, Charlie, I got about a week to go. He said, I led somebody to the Lord last night. Mm -hmm. And I said, Jeff, if nothing else in your life matters about what's happened in the past three years, everything is worth what happened last night when you talked to that person. Jesus said that what profit is it for a man if you gain the whole world and let yet lose your soul? The whole world, the entire world, all the wealth and all the riches and all the fame and fortune is not worth one human soul. And he had the honor and the privilege of leading somebody to the Lord. And he did it with such humility. He said, I think the Lord would be disappointed in how I, I got through it. The Lord wasn't disappointed. The goal was met and his failing speech will be perfected as he does this with other people in the future. But I'm proud of him for what he did. This person will be in jail for probably five more years thinking about the Lord. Hopefully he'll read his Bible a million times and he'll come out and be a pastor of a church, whatever. But the Lord was glorified through this guy's action in church or in, in jail for a crime. I do not believe that he committed. Anyway, there you go. Verse 12 continues. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. After a time of mourning for his wife, and in the Bible, it's like 30 to 45 days. It depends on, you know, the, the time frame. It says he went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, taking along his friend Hira. Timnah means a part assigned or a territory. Now, the reason for taking his friend is at the time that the sheep are sheared, it's usually a time of fun and parties. If you think of the harvest season in the Bible, and they're all having a party, right? They're, they're bringing in the grain, and you read the book of Ruth, and you'll see this. It's the same thing at the time for sheep shearers. If you're a shepherd, it's a time of celebration. So the owners would invite friends. They'd treat their working hands to entertainment. They'd give them good food. They'd have festivity, all that kind of stuff. And this occurs right around the end of March, after the winter is ending. Because of the festive time, he brings along his friend Hera as well. Verse 13, and it was told Tamar saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to share his sheep. And what's probably just a matter of fact happening, someone mentions to Tamar that Judah, her father-in-law is going up here to this place, Timnah, and he's going to do his sheep sharing. Now, whether this comment was simply an innocuous statement of fact or whether they were planning something, Tamar is going to use it as an opportunity for personal justification. Verse 14, so she took off her widow's garments covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself. 
The clothes that she wore while living in her father's house, they'd show her righteousness. They distinguished her as a widow. She had remained faithful to her trust by not marrying, but she had also remained faithful by showing those around her that she was a widow and living as a widow. If nothing else, the Bible testifies to the righteousness of her actions in the book of Genesis. However, because of the length of the time that's mentioned in the previous verse that we read, she had figured out that Judah had actually no intention at all of giving his third son to her as a husband. And this was her right. She's entitled to this. And she knew, if she knew of the messianic blessing that in fact the Messiah was going to come through this line of Judah, how much more would it be her right? And so she devises a plan without knowing its outcome to get him to see the error of his ways. She puts on a veil and she wraps herself in a manner which would identify her as a prostitute. The word for veil here is the Hebrew word siaf, and it's only used three times in the entire Bible. The first time was back when Rebekah was just being brought from Mesopotamia down through the land of Israel to meet her future husband Isaac. And she's on a camel, and they say, there he is, and she wrapped herself in a siaf. So if you know that story, or if you go watch that video, you may start understanding what's going on right here. The other two times this word siaf are used are both in this story. She's unknown to Judah because of the veil. Verse 14 continues, and she sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. Then she sat in an open place, and it's on the way to where this guy is heading. In Hebrew, the term open place is befitta enayim, the gateway of eyes. She's dressed as a prostitute, and she's sitting in a location which would identify her with, as a prostitute as well. And the reason for her doing this is seen in the continuation of verse 14. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. It's been long enough, and she knows this, for Shelah to have grown up to the point that she should have been given this guy as a husband, and it hadn't happened. Now, in order to be justified, as she should have been by her father-in-law Judah, she will turn the tables on him. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Of course he did. She's dressed as a harlot. She's in this harlot-y kind of place, and her face is disguised from who she is. You don't know who she is. So Judah simply thinks it's a prostitute and not his daughter-in-law. The Hebrew word here is the word zona, a person who sells themselves for hire. But it's used figuratively throughout the rest of the Bible when speaking of religious prostitution. An example of this is found in Hosea chapter 9. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples, for you have played the harlot, that word there, zona, against your God, for you have made love for hire on every threshing floor. Verse 16, then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Judah, seeing this woman by the wayside, being unmarried and completely unsuspecting of who she really is, makes an offer for a tryst. The Bible specifically notes that he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. In other words, it implies that if he did know, he would not have done this. And that should be obvious because he never propositioned her before. He unsuspectingly was led to do what he otherwise would have refrained from doing. Verse 16 continues. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? A deal is a deal. He's offered and she asked what he's willing to pay for the services. Again, as I mentioned earlier, the Bible doesn't hide these things. They are the state of fallen people living in a fallen world, and the Bible shows what happened. Not just for fun stories, stories about how stupid we can be, or merely irrelevant stories, but they're to show us greater moral lessons 
and even greater pictures of God's working in redemptive history. All right, verse 17, and he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. Judah's offer for her services is a goat from the flock. In Hebrew, the term gedi izim, a kid goat. It's something that he will send back to her later, but without the payment in hand, she plays the true role of a harlot by expecting something as collateral. Verse 17 continues. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you sent it? This is the turning point of the entire chapter right here in this verse. If you can grasp what's being said right here, then you will understand what's going on in this chapter. So give me a pledge until you send it. The word pledge right here is erevon. It signifies an earnest deposit. When the goat is received, then the earnest can be returned. Verse 18, then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. When he asked what she, when she, he asked what she wants as a pledge, she asked for three things. She asked for a signet, his cord, and his staff. The signet, chothimcha. It's either a ring or a medallion, which was used to make impressions in either wax or clay. It's used just like we use a signature nowadays. It's one's identity. In the case of a king, it would be his symbol of authority. And you'll see this throughout the pages of the Bible. In Haggai chapter 2, it's used when speaking of the authority of the Davidic line, which is bestowed by God on a man named Zerubbabel. He's one of the returnees from the exile in Babylon, and he's going down to Israel, and he says, you will be like a signet ring on my hand. This is the Lord speaking to Zerubbabel, who, by the way, is in the ancestry of Jesus also. Uftelecha, and your cord. The word comes from another word, which is patal, which means to twist. And so some Bibles will say it's a bracelet. Some will say it's a piece of clothing. But what it is most likely referring to is a cord, which is attached to the signet so he can keep it around his neck. Umatecha, and your staff. This is a walking stick, which would have been used as Judah's ensign. In the 110th Psalm, it's used to indicate the scepter, the symbol of strength and authority of the Messiah. Here's what it says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod, this word right here, of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Are you seeing what's going on here yet? Verse 18 continues. Then he gave them to her and she, he went into her and she conceived by him. These things are taken as a pledge for the kid goat. They show the ensign, the authority, and the identity of Judah. Until he receives them back. She has title to them. After obtaining the possession of these articles, we're told that Judah received his payment and in turn, Tamar receives his seed. She conceives a child through this one encounter. It's another divinely inspired and directed event in the unfolding events of man's redemption. If you think about Lot and his two daughters and what happened there, his two daughters were living in a cave with him they get him drunk, each one, and they go into him one night. And they have, each one of them has a child. And each one of those children is in the ancestry of Jesus Christ. One night with their father. And then we have this one here. One time, she sleeps with her father-in-law, and she becomes in the ancestry of the Messiah. If you don't see God's direction in his hand all over these type of things, what are the chances of a person on the first time? And 
with three of them in a row in man's redemption. God is working this out and he's trying to get us up to wake, get us to wake up to what's going on in this story and how it's all pointing to Jesus and how it's all picturing something that Jesus will do for us. It's astonishing. Verse 19, so she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. Now in order to keep from receiving this kid goat immediately and thus having to return the pledge, she hurries away from the location. Once home again, she removes the veil, she puts on the garments of widowhood. She possesses the pledge and she possesses the child. She is the bearer of the coming Messiah and the possessor of the authority of the messianic line. Our third thought today, the missing harlot. Verse 20, and Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. For whatever reason, instead of going himself, he sends the goat with his friend, the Adulamite. The payment is being offered and the pledge is uh, expected in return. However, she's gone and she's nowhere to be found. Now, I want you to know something. The term Adulamite has been used three times. In the first two times, Hera's name is used in connection with it. This time it leaves the name out and it only says the Adulamite. Why would God do that? Verse 21, then he asked the men of that place saying, where is the harlot who is openly by the roadside? And they said, there's no harlot in this place. Hera asks around for this harlot, but this time a different word for harlot is used. You wouldn't get this in an English translation. It is not the word Zona, but the word Kedeshah. It's a temple <coughs> prostitute, one who has sex for religious purposes, not for money. Even if money is, is uh, used in the process, it's a done for religious purposes. The word Kedesh is the same word. Kedeshah is just the feminine of it. The word Kedesh is the same word and it's closely related to the word Kadesh. They're spelled the same. They just have a different pronunciation. Both carry the connotation of what is holy. If you look at the holy implements in the tabernacle, it's Kadesh. So uh, they both have this connotation of holiness. And he's supposing that this is her type of prostitution. This type of prostitution was very common in the Middle East for many centuries, and it was also practiced among the Greeks and the Romans. But in this case, none of the people around have any knowledge of there being a temple prostitute, and they even deny there being one, and they know. I mean, if there's a temple there and a prostitute, then in fact, they would know she's there. And so he goes back to Judah, verse 22. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. His search complete, even to inquiring all of the people of the place, and yet he couldn't find her. He's done everything he can, but to no avail. And again, he uses the term Kedeshah instead of Zona to describe the harlot. Verse 23, then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. Before I sent this young goat, you have not found her. Judah's more worried about being laughed at by man than he is his conduct before God. The tokens of his position, his title, and identity also mean less to him than being laughed at. He's unwilling to bear the reproach of his actions, even at such a high cost. And then he shrugs it off by saying, I did my part, I sent the goat. If the payment isn't acceptable, then that's his fault. He feels he can do without the pledge. And he feels justified because he went through the motions of his obligation, even though it was for completely perverse purposes. This is surprisingly where we have to lead off today. And I hate to do that to you because it, we'd be here for another 45 minutes just explaining what's going on. But I have to tell you what, the completion of the story and this chapter is going to come next week. 
And until we get there, I hope that you will take time to think on what you've heard and try to make an effort to place it in a New Testament context. It took me all day and all night studying the Hebrew and then thinking about it for me to do it. And maybe you will in the next seven days, and I hope so. Go watch that Genesis 34 series of sermons and go see about the veil that, uh, what's her name, uh, wore, uh, Rebecca wore on her way to Isaac, and it may come clear to you. But please think it through. And in particular, I'd like you to think on the pledge that Tamar was given. If you can place that, then the rest of this story will make sense. A pledge is something that is given in anticipation of receiving something else. We, if you are in Christ, and I'm only talking to people that have received Jesus Christ as Savior, we, like Tamar, have been given a pledge if we have called on Jesus Christ as Lord. It's documented in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It is the guarantee of our promised redemption. As God does not make mistakes, we have the absolute assurance of the fulfillment of the promise. So please stand fast on that. But if you've never called on Jesus as Lord, you have no guarantee at all, except the surety that you are going to die, and when you die, you will be separated from God. But in his great mercy, God sent his son to change that. And so I'd like to take just a minute, and I'd like to explain to you very clearly what that means to you. The Bible says that we are human beings created in God's image. I believe that 100%. I do not believe in evolution. I believe that God made man. He gave him the ability to make choices is called free will, and man exercised his choice against God. There were two. There were was one commandment that was given in the garden. There were two trees, and he said, "Don't eat of uh, this one tree. You can have of any other tree, and in particular, you can have this one if you want." He didn't say anything about that. But man disobeyed, and he ate of the one tree that he wasn't allowed to eat of. And when we did, sin entered into man, and he became aware. Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. We now have something that we didn't have in the garden, but we lost a lot. We lost that spiritual connection with God our Father. And we all know this. We know this instinctively. We don't have to teach our children to do wrong. They know how to do wrong. It's teaching them to do right that we need to do. We need to raise them in the way of the Lord. Sin has infected us. The wages of sin is death. Every person here is going to die physically, but we're already spiritually dead according to the Bible. And if we don't resolve the spiritual death before our physical death comes, then our spiritual death will remain for all eternity and we will be separated from God. That's just the facts of reality if you accept the premise of the Bible. And so what God did in his great love and mercy, it says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a gift. It's not something you can earn. You can't pay God. You can't be good enough. There's no bell curve on which God grades. It's either righteous or unrighteous. Then there's only one way to obtain this righteousness, and that is through his son. His son came into the stream of humanity in the womb of a woman. So he's fully man, but he has no father from a human origin. He has God as his father. So he is the God man. He entered into this stream without inheriting sin because sin travels through the father, hence the sign of circumcision, cutting away of sin picturing Jesus Christ. So he's born without sin, but now he has to do something. He has to prevail over sin. He's living under the law of Moses, the Big Ten, and 613 other commandments that he must fulfill perfectly. And that's what the gospel records are there for us, to show us how he fulfilled this law of Moses that we cannot fulfill. 
In fact, the law of Moses just further condemns us, the Bible tells us, because we know that we've lied. We know that we've done things wrong. But Jesus didn't. He prevailed over that law. He embodies that law. And he says, if you will put your trust in me, if you will call on me as Lord and Savior, I will move you from your earthly father, Adam, to me. I will become your father through adoption. And when you're a child of God, you can never lose that. It is eternal. So I would ask that if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to forgive you of all of the things that you've done wrong in your life, that you would take that time today and just say, Lord, I want to be reconciled to you. I don't need religion. I don't need to go to church and give them a bunch of money. I don't need any of those things. All I need to do is get right with you and everything else will come about in its due time. I know that will happen. But you got to get the healing done first. Nobody says, I'm sick and I'm going to get myself cured before I go to the doctor. You go to the doctor to get cured, and he will cure you. Call on Jesus. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Come and study his precious word every week. And if you need any help with this book, I will make myself available. You know that if you've emailed me day and night. That's all I want to do is to tell people about his precious word and how desperately God loves us but he gives us the free will choice to reject him. Don't make the wrong choice. I've got a closing verse for you today from Psalm 25, but before I read it, I've erred, and I hate to do that, and I'm sorry about that. Um, uh, I should have said this during the announcements. We have tracks on the wall right by the door here, and they were graciously provided by Paul Stoll. He ordered the uh, rack and the tracks, and uh, I, I cannot thank him enough for having done that. If you want some, take them, hand them out when you have lunch, he, I never see, I go out to lunch or breakfast or dinner with him. He never fails to take one out and give it to somebody. Here, can I tell you about Jesus? Here, please read this. Message of life in a simple, concise form like Billy Graham will give. Not like Charlie Garrick is. It takes all day to give. And one other thing, I want to thank Paul Stoll again, along with Darla, because uh, they developed a, a brochure that if any of you would hand out for the superior word, tells our Bible study times and all that. If you know somebody or if you have a, a board, you can hang it on at work or whatever. Please take one. That's their thanking, Darla and Paul, for that. Our closing verses from Psalm 25. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Next week is Genesis 38, verses 24 through 30. It's the one who breaks through. It's our 96th Genesis sermon. It's wonderful stuff. Actually, there's two pictures in this one, and that's why I stopped where I did. I had to stop today. There's two pictures going on, both relating to something, and they'll all be tied together next week. Unfortunately, I know Scott won't be here, so he's going to have to watch it on uh, uh, YouTube with his precious wife, Gail. But uh, I will tell you this before we have our final poem of the day. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things both for you and through you. Our poem today is called Judah and Tamar, The Transfer of the Pledge. It came to pass at that time that Judah and his brothers departed and visited a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira, the name he was imparted. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. Soon there would be more than just them a Tua. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. He was the first one. She conceived again, and soon a son she bore, and she called his name Onan, a second son to adore. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chazib when she bore that one, and with the third she cried, zippity doo <laughs> Then Judah took a wife for his firstborn Ur, and Tamar was the name that was given to her. 
But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him because of his scorn, such as noted in God's precious word. And Judah said to the second son, Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother, young man. Fulfill your duty to your dead brother Ur. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. Then it came to pass, in actions quite unsound, when he went into his brother's wife, he did this, that he omitted instead on the ground. Lest he should give an heir to his brother, he only thought of himself, not another. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore he killed him also, as says the word. Then to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Judah said, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown in the days ahead, and I will give to him you as his spouse. Lest he die like his brothers, is what Judah said. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house, because now her second husband was dead. Now in the process of time, as the days passed, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. After a time of grief, he went up to his sheep shearers, to Timnah, with Hira the Adulamite at his side. And it was told to Tamar, saying, Look, up to Timnah is going your father-in-law to shear his sheep. For this you have been praying. Get moving, Tamar. Don't hem and haw. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapped her face. She went to a spot on the way to Timnah. There she sat in an open place. For she saw that Shelah was grown in life, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. Because she had covered her face, she seemed of ill repute. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law instead, as if this made it the right thing that he was to do. So she said, What thing will it be that you will give so you may thus come into me? And he said, A young goat from the flock I will tender. So she said, Until then, will you to me a pledge render? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and your cord also, and your staff that is in your hand, this you shall do. Then what you have promised I will receive, I know. Then he gave them to her, and into her he went, and she conceived by him in this time that they spent. So she arose and went away, and laid aside her veil that she had wore, and put on the garments of her widowhood that day, living without a husband once more. And Judah sent the young goat as was planned, by the hand of the Adulamite, his friend, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he did not find her as he did intend. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who did disappear, who was openly by the roadside and covered her face? And they said, There was no harlot around here. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her, though I looked everywhere. Also the men of the place I do dread said there was no harlot working there. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we get this out and we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. We can't be blamed. The details are given for us to continue to see. God's unfolding plan revealed in history. Every word gives us insights into his loving heart. Each story is to show us more of his son, Jesus. As we read the word, to us it does impart wisdom and beauty given from God to us. And so be sure to cherish the word every day and every night. Let it be your comforting friend and let it be your guiding light. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, glorious heavenly father. How wonderful you are. How mysterious is your word until we get into it and we see the love that's found there and the beauty and the majesty of everything being woven together into a tapestry of mercy and grace in the giving of your son, our Lord Jesus. Oh, radiant Jesus, how precious you are. Thank you for all the work you did for us on the tree of Calvary, which redeems us back to our father and which 
gives us the sure hope of eternal life in your glorious presence. Forever we'll walk on streets of gold and we'll know that you are there with us, radiating your light, leading the way for all eternity, seeking out a ceaseless wonder and delight of your wisdom and your grace and your love. We thank you for that. I would pray for each person here that they would have a blessed week ahead, that you would take care of them and uh, just be with them. If affliction comes their way, that they would understand that it was ordained by you for them to learn something and to turn around and to praise you, even in the storm, because that's when we're really showing obedience. It's not when things are going well, but it's when things are kind of tough and we turn around and we say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And yes, blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you for our Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his cross. And it's in his glorious name that we pray. Amen.